Welcome to Zen Bones, ancient wisdom for modern times. This is Mark Lesser. Why Zen Bones? Our world is in crisis and ever-shifting, and now, more than ever, more wisdom, clarity, and courage are essential, especially in the world of work, business, and leadership. I'm really pleased to welcome Sharon Salzberg. Sharon is one of the most well-known and revered mindfulness and meditation teachers in the world today. She's written many books, including a very popular and wonderful book about loving kindness. In our discussion, we talk about tight spots and resistance and methods and ways of transforming tight spots to openness and freedom. We talk about loving kindness, the practice of loving kindness. We get into the topic of shame and how shame uh, can be negative or positive depending on the approach. We talk about presence and meditation. And then Sharon leads a powerful loving kindness meditation. I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to Zen Bones, Ancient Wisdom for Modern Times. This is Mark Lesser, and I am really happy this morning to be here with my Dharma sister friend, Sharon Salzberg. Good morning, Sharon. Good morning, or afternoon. Well, morning, yeah. Late morning. Yeah. Well, and there's no, you know, this time, time has taken a whole different sense because people can listen to this in the middle of the night or early in the morning or driving or walking or who knows two years from now two years two years from now 10 years from now who knows well sharon i was i was thinking about the last time we were in person was at a book reading here in mill valley when your book about real love had come out and and i was just looking at your book that's about to come out called Real Life. And and one of the things that you that really got my attention was you're talking about the power of our imaginations and having the courage to to imagine. And as you and I were preparing, I was saying, let's imagine this conversation being life-changing, earth-shattering. So 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 let's <laughs> What do you what tell me a little bit about this new book and what you mean by having the courage to imagine? Where does that come from and how might you how might people practice with this in their lives? It's so interesting. I I did have, actually have a book in between. There was a book I wrote called Real Change. I'm sort of on the real train and uh I wrote Real Change before the pandemic. It came out during the pandemic. I wrote Real Life During the Pandemic, and it will come out wherever we are, which is very interesting. It started in a way because on April something of 2020, so I was newly into lockdown, I watched a thing on YouTube called Saturday Night Seder. And it was one of the first productions, I think, that was created entirely on Zoom. And so the writers were never in the room together. And it was beautiful. And it was, you know, rabbis and opera singers and 
performers and comedians and uh and it was a reminder to me that in that story the story of the exodus from egypt to jerusalem was the story of the movement from oppression to freedom and that the word egypt i was really pushing people in reading it not to get lost in geopolitics that's not what it's about it's all symbolic and uh the word egypt actually means narrow place like confined constrained held in place and so it's that movement from contraction to expansion to openness and first of all what it takes you know really struck me to have that kind of audacity to imagine yeah life can really look different don't have to feel stuck here and then to take the journey and of course the seder ends so this is the end of the book with aspiration when everyone says next year in jerusalem sort of jerusalem is not a place but it is that world that doesn't have people hungry and doesn't have war and doesn't have the things that are very real but possible you know it's not, these are not impossible dreams and so what's it like to have that kind of aspiration beginning middle and end and mm-hmm. take the journey mm-hmm. yeah i love the word I often come back to the word aspiration you know which mm-hmm. includes breath right and uh, when we think about these you know ancient practices for modern times and here you are talking about you know the ancient passover seder and egypt and these traditions of this focus on tight places interesting the relationship between right tight places aspiration and imagining and moving toward real freedom or the you know the name of your one of one of your forthcoming books real life real yeah, life yeah. real freedom yeah this also is the first time I say this to you as a fellow writer. It's the first time I've written a book without also traveling all the time myself because I was in lockdown, you know. And it was such an interesting experience to be stable in a way and uh, not moving around and to be writing about movement and, you know, and change and so on. It was it was a really good experience. Yeah, so this, uh, one of the descriptions of this book is to take some risks with what we dare to imagine and interest in states we might normally try to avoid. I think we normally, you know, we normally avoid those tight places. And yet there's something so profound and useful about those tight places. It's interesting, you know, that meditation practice is like sitting still. And I'm aware of how it's hard for me, it's hard for most people to sit still and actually access those tight places. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, this kind of really feeling these tight places, and then imagining what's possible or feeling how we can transform those tight places into greater freedom. Well, I began to see just in that process you know it's almost like daydreaming or it's just like being in the neighborhood of your topic you know you're not actively writing maybe but you're just there and you're seeing what moves through you and what appears and 
what you end up channeling in a way and and how many of my own teachers or teachers from other traditions had kind of the same advice, more or less poetic, which is exactly what you just said. You know, instead of trying to dismantle the particular habit structure that um, has you feeling a certain way or thinking a certain pattern, be with it, you know, open to it. And in a way, maybe it's all about balance, like many things, because sometimes we have the tendency to get immersed and overcome and really uh, defined by what is really a passing emotional state, like a greed or jealousy or something. And instead of realizing what we need is a little bit more space. And other times we're so distant, we're so unwilling to feel or recognize or acknowledge. Yeah, this is what's going on right now, that what we need to do is come a little closer. But if you just use a word like openness or open to, then kind of covers both imbalances, which is really what we need. We need a kind of presence in the face of whatever that's very different from probably our normal conditioning. Yeah, it sounds a lot like, um, you know, a pain and possibility or, right, tight tightness, the balance, the balance. But it's interesting, you know, <laughs> I think it's not about finding the middle ground, but like really feeling the tightness. And again, this being really open to imagining what's possible, right? So like like this this journey that you were describing, the journey, you know, out of Egypt into freedom. Mm-hmm. Again, these mm-hmm. are sim- symbols of being con- constriction and openness, constriction and openness. It's a little mm-hmm. bit, one of the exercises that I've, I've seen done is like making a fist, like feeling mm-hmm. in your body what it's like to constrict and then literally to feeling what it's like to open, open your hand and mm-hmm. that bodily, bodily sensation of constriction and freedom and openness. Yeah, I mean, part of our, our problem, I guess, is that we don't feel, well, that's a big part of our problem. We're disconnected and we don't recognize that we're, you know, we're not being asked to get angry at what we're feeling or have a hostility toward it or hate it or be ashamed of it, but to relinquish the hold, you know, because it's actually painful. And what we don't feel is, is the pain of it. And so if we can feel that, it's a very natural movement. It's not like coerced or even overly fierce, you know, it's just like, oh yeah, we just open. And we're able to let go in a different way and able to come back to a state of balance and more kind of presence than maybe we had before. And and it's all to the good, you know. Yeah, you also, the other statement from the description of the book Real Life is um, take an interest in people we might normally try to avoid. Where does that come from and what do you mean by that? Well, I think it's the same movement, you know, of this is a gesture. It's almost like a, a gesture of generosity, although we don't think of it that way of of loving kindness when we are working with internal states and we say, oh yeah, this is what's happening right now. 
And that's not an easy thing. You know, it's, I think about the various points of view about the popularity of the word mindfulness, for example, and uh, being as old as I am and having watched, you know, this kind of popularization of this movement happen. It's been very interesting because there are a lot of qualities implied in the word mindfulness, which I would define, it could be defined a lot of different ways, but I would define it as a quality of awareness where our perception of what's happening in the present moment is not so distorted, distorted by bias, old fears, projection into the future, whatever it might be. And it's not easy, you know, because that's where we tend to go, just out of habit. And one of the things implied there is a kind of love or loving kindness or tolerance of, yes, this is what I'm feeling right now. And these days, a lot of people are trying to bring that out, you know, and not have it be implicit, but explicit. And so, you know, you hear these conversations where people say, well, mindfulness is such a cold word. It sounds so clinical and cold, like, Let's call it kindfulness instead of mindfulness or, you know, call it loving awareness or something like that. And I don't know that you need to change the word, but understand how much is there. And just as we work internally with those states, it's the same gesture externally, like all those many beings. And I think that was one of the kind of striking things for a lot of people in the pandemic depending on how you were living, but, you know, that ocean of beings that we are generally indifferent to, that we look through, that we don't look at. We can call them essential workers all we want, but they've not felt very essential to our lives. And how many we miss, you know, in in having that kind of dreamlike existence where we go to the supermarket or we go somewhere and and... You could just feel these like flickers of wakefulness as people were were recognizing, oh, I live in an interdependent universe. Like, I don't grow my own food. <laughs> you know, there's lots of beings involved in my being able to eat. Look at that. And it's a whole it's a whole other universe than we had imagined, maybe. And it's fascinating also watching the interplay of the and the external and realize, oh, we're developing the same qualities, like no matter where it's directed. And so internally, it's the various forces that arise in our minds and come and go. And externally, it's the various beings in our lives that we you know, make assumptions about or we cut off before they really present themselves and, or, or we, you know, we're not really paying attention to. And the question becomes, what happens when I do pay attention after all? Yeah, it's interesting. Paying paying attention both to the restrictions and the possibilities. Expanding, how can we, a bit paradoxical, right? Expanding mm-hmm. expanding our worlds through, through what's possible. It also makes me think, Sharon, of the book that I think was I think a powerful part of your becoming more more known was the book about loving kindness, mm-hmm. which in some way it, it maybe catches 
people's imaginations, right? The possibility, mm -hmm. the possibility that we can practice, that we can practice love, loving kindness and the need to practice loving kindness, maybe as a way of, of touching and melting or transforming our tightness or we're tight and where we're narrow. So loving kindness, maybe as the, as the path toward from restriction to freedom. Yeah, I mean, that was my first book and covered within the Buddhist context the four Brahma Viharas or four boundless states of loving kindness and compassion and sympathetic joy or joy in the happiness of others and then equanimity or the articulation of wisdom as balance and mostly about loving kindness and as though you were doing that practice where you make that offering of paying attention differently and care and so on to yourself and then a variety of beings, those you feel close to, those you're more distant from and so on till we come to all beings everywhere, to all of life. And it's all based on a recognition of interconnection that our lives have something to do with one another. And I found it a tremendously profound practice and not that easy to understand even because we tend to confuse, say, loving kindness with liking somebody or approving of them or giving into them or something like that. It doesn't mean any of that. It's very much, it isn't even necessarily emotional. And for those who use the word love, that's really confusing, you know, which always seems emotional to us. And, but it isn't necessarily. It's, it could be that moment of inclusion, that moment of listening and realizing, oh, I haven't been listening to this being something like that. And that was such a hugely important practice for me when I did it like intensively in 1985 when I went to Burma for three months to do that practice. And from that point on, when I was teaching it, because then I was sort of with others as they went through their own process in doing it. And so I was really happy to write about it. And it was my first book, and it was a long time ago. You know, in those days, I didn't know how to use a computer, a personal computer, and I hardly knew anybody who had one. I did notice that the few people I knew who did have one never talked about anything else. I mean, it was such a magical thing, and I was so scared. I was so intimidated. I thought, I can never learn how to use it. It's like, it was so beyond me. And then I was at IMS at the Insight Meditation Society, and we had a visit one day from a 94-year-old Sri Lankan monk. And we were just hanging out together, and he mentioned that he was learning how to use a computer. And I thought, okay, he's 94 years old. He's learning how to use a computer. Maybe I can too. And then he said he'd like to go into the meditation hall. We had a retreat that was happening. He'd like to go into the hall and give a talk. So I thought, okay, he's 94 years old. It's not going to be a very long talk. How long could it be? And it turned out to be an endless talk. It was so long because he had more energy than all of us put together. And During the course of the talk, he said, I want to teach you my favorite meditation, which was a combo, we would say, 
a body scan, as John Kabat-Zinn later popularized the term, moving your attention through your body, picking up these different sensations that might be appearing. So his favorite meditation was a combo of the body scan and loving kindness meditation so that he might start with like, may my head be happy, may it be peaceful and move on to his eyes and his ears, and, you know, like every organ. And I sat there and I thought, oh, maybe that's the reason he has so much energy, you know, because this is his favorite meditation and he must do it sometimes. It was really, it was very beautiful to think of relating to one's own body in just that way. And through the years, I've seen the kind of healing potential and the transformation as people deal with, you know, the body is extremely inconvenient as you get older. <laughs> it's like, it's a tough row. And, you know, the scarring and the hurting and the everything can be very hard to deal with. And, and seeing, you know, there's no choice. It's not like we're given a, a menu, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've, I'm staying with your statement. The body is very inconvenient. And hearing about this 94 year old do a this meditation that I I haven't heard that before. The the combination of integrating mm-hmm. a body scan, right? The, as you said, that John Kabat-Zinn popularized, and which now everyone does, or at least I hear, I see a lot of people doing it with, and, but combining it with loving kindness seems really pr- profound, right? Mm-hmm. I think it's very beautiful. And it's first listening, of course, it seemed very elemental. Like may my eyes be happy. May my nose be happy. Like what is this kindergarten? But actually it's mostly through the years seeing people practice it and seeing the really profound effect is, you know, it's also a deeper understanding of loving kindness because it can't possibly mean may my terrible diagnosis like flourish, you know, that's not what we want. But the sort of martial attacking part of my body as it goes into revolt or that's not what we want necessarily either. You know, we want a different kind of holding environment for every experience that can be present because Guess what? Our awareness is stronger than this disease process or whatever the body is undergoing. It's hard to trust that. There's no reason to just trust it on you know my saying so, but we experiment. We keep paying attention and we do these things and see what the effect is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this simple practice of right, bringing attention and love to our bodies. Mm-hmm. Right, loving, yeah. It seems so obvious, and yet, as you said, you know, it's like kindergarten, so ele- elementary. I love, you know, I love loving my eyes, loving my nose. I wonder, Sharon, if you would, well, first, maybe if there's, is there um, anything else you would like to to bring up or say here in this conversation? And I'm also thinking it would be great we're ready to close if you would lead maybe just a short kind of loving kindness meditation of some some kind i would be happy to no i'm I'm thinking about real life you know like what's in that book anyway (laughs) (laughs) yeah what's in that book what's the 
how would you describe what, what's the essence of this book, <laughs> Real Life? Well, I, I tried to make a point that when I say moving from constriction or narrowness, when I say narrowness, I don't mean intentionality or conviction or, you know, a lot of times we think about being focused as being narrow, but that's not what I mean. I mean, really, those times we feel trapped. You know, we feel like we are imprisoned in something and how so many of the things that we get that feeling from, being entrapped, being being closed in, are, you could say, you know, again, from the Buddhist point of view, kind of the three basic issues of grasping, aversion, and delusion. Aversion being anger and fear, just two different forms of the same mind state, basically. And how these manifest in in everyday life. So in talking about grasping, I talked about addiction. In talking about aversion, I talked about shame. And that was a really interesting journey because all of these things are elements, they're habits, they're forces in our minds that we picked up because we had a lot of hope about them, you know? this is going to make me happy or this is going to be the way out. And sometimes they work for a period of time. They do work. And uh, of course we know that, you know, from psychology and, and yet they don't work always. And then they get kind of old and then it's like the go-to place. And it's like, I'm here again, you know, and again, you know, sort of, which, which means it's another reason we can forgive ourselves for whatever we're feeling because it was a survival mechanism often. And then there's delusion, which is just delusion and kind of confusion and numbness. I also wrote about how in the teachings, there's some aspect of delusion that leads us to kind of a fundamentalism, you know, because being out in the wilderness, so to speak, we usually hold on tight to something if we can find it. And that becomes a kind of fundamentalist stance. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, shame which you mentioned is really interesting, you know, in, in Buddhist psychology of all the different emotions, I believe that shame is the only one that is listed as both unwholesome and wholesome, Mm -hmm. right? There's an unwholesome kind of shaming, Mm -hmm. but there's also a wholesome kind of shame Mm -hmm. as there's a kind of depth to it. And it makes me also think of, I remember in a conversation I had some time ago with Bill George, who wrote a true North about leadership. And one of the things he talks about is how CEOs and leaders, his experiences, they need to touch their shame and transform a sense of shame in order to be more effective and skillful leaders. You know, it's a kind of, I think of it as a, maybe a deep sense of humility it's very hum- humbling mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know the shame the shame that we can't change everything or mm-hmm. that we can't you know that we've done maybe we've done things inadvertently that have been hurtful mm-hmm. and I, I feel like so that's that i think is the wholesome side of shame is this recognition that we've caused some harm despite our best intentions mm-hmm. well one of the things i feel looking back at my writing, especially, of course, has been that part of what I've gotten really excited about and inspired by is the ability to redeem words. 
because these words are complex and these states are complex. You know, loving kindness or love, faith. You know, I wrote a book on faith. But no one understood why I was writing a book on faith. And, you know, people would, would say to me, like, why are you doing that? You know, and I'd say, well, I want to redeem the word. I don't think it has to mean a state where you're not allowed to ask questions, for example, or where you're silenced in some way. So partly that, that passage or that section happened because just before I spent February of 2020 traveling and teaching in California, not knowing what was coming as we didn't, you know, and I was with this small group of people in someone's house teaching one night and there was a psychologist present who made some comment like the brain that's filled with shame cannot learn. And so that was a particular meaning of shame in a certain context. And it was very interesting context, you know, and I thought about knowing what we want out of a situation, like maybe what we really want is behavior change. And if you can't learn when you're filled with shame, that's probably not the best place to be, you know, and trying to affect some change. So um, there was that. And then thinking, how do we learn? How do we let go of these habits? How do we, uh, without hating ourselves and without carrying on? So then I got entangled because in, in some schools of Buddhist psychology, the distinction would be between regret or remorse, which is painful. It's like what you're talking about. It's, it's like conscience, where we do recollect the harm we caused or the way we behaved that wasn't that great. But we can let go of it with some imagination about <laughs> the possibility of change. Or we stay stuck there. That would be guilt. So the distinction is between guilt and remorse. And with guilt, we just kind of go over it and 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 over it. We can't move on. So it's exhausting. It's demoralizing. And it's not considered that wholesome because we're stuck. And then in you know, being home and talking to psychologists and therapists and people, they would say to me, well, in Western psychology, the distinction would be between shame and guilt. Guilt would be considered positive because it's in contrast to um, globalizing. You know, instead of saying, I did something reckless or I said something inappropriate or unskillful at that meeting, it would be like, I'm a bad person. You know, and that was a whole yeah. other angle for me. Yeah. Uh, I would think the the unwholesome the distinction I think is for any of these whether it's shame or even remorse or guilt that there's a fixed quality to it versus a recognition that these are tentative states or temporary states that we can learn from and yeah. grow and yeah. grow from. Yeah, again, this full circle here in this conversation, starting with uh, Egypt. The tight tight spots, the tight spots, mm -hmm. and seeing the tight spots as opportunities for learning and growth because they're not fixed. We're not stuck in Egypt. That's right. That's right. The imagination. The imagination, right, right, and yeah, and not not avoiding or grasping on to the tight spots. Mm -hmm. Well, it's so great to get to hang out with you, Sharon. I it's must fun say. to hang out with you. <laughs> and. Is there something, maybe a short, you know, again, a few minutes, does that work for you? Uh, yeah, I, 
You wanted a loving kindness meditation? Yeah, just uh, wait. Let's go for it. Let's do it. So you can sit comfortably. And if it's you know appropriate, close your eyes or leave them open. It depends on how you're comfortable. There are many, many ways of doing loving kindness meditation. I was taught and therefore teach the silent repetition of certain phrases. The phrases are a different way of paying attention. You don't have to force or manufacture any kind of feeling or emotion. The power of the practice is in the complete wholehearted gathering of all of our attention, one phrase at a time. Phrases need to be big enough. They're, they're gestures of generosity. It's offering, it's gift giving. We start with offering the phrases to ourselves and go through a variety of different relationships. Those we feel close to maybe, those we don't feel that close to. So we come to all beings everywhere, all of life. Now that's an awful lot to do in one session, so we don't try to do everything, every single thing in one session, but that's okay too. So the phrases need to be general to reflect that. Common phrases starting with ourselves are things like, may I, may I be safe, be happy, be healthy. Live with ease. Which means in the things of day-to-day -day life, like livelihood and family, it may not be such a struggle. May I live with ease. May I be safe. Be happy. Be healthy. Live with ease. People often say to me, who am I asking? And my response is, we're not asking anybody anything. We're gift-giving, we're offering. So you can repeat these phrases over and over again with enough space and enough silence so that it's a rhythm that's pleasing to you. And crucial is when your attention wanders, you fall asleep, you're totally lost in thought, spun out in a fantasy, don't worry about it, truly. You can realize you're gone, you've been distracted. See if you can let go gently and simply start again. Come back to the phrases. Okay, beginning with oneself. May I be safe, be happy, be healthy. Live with ease. And see if you can think of someone who's been like a benefactor for you. They've helped you. Maybe they've helped you directly. They've helped pick you up when you've fallen down. Or maybe they've inspired you from afar. You've never even met them. The texts say this is the one who, when you think of them, you smile. Could be an adult. Could be a child. Could be a pet. It's like an embodiment of the force of love in this world. Is there someone you think of them and they just like lift you, lift your spirits? And if so, bring them here. 
You can get an image of them or say their name to yourself. Get a feeling for their presence. And offer the phrases of love and kindness to them. Even if the words don't seem perfect, they're carrying the energy of the heart, so they're serving us. May you be safe. Be happy. Be healthy. Live with ease. And a friend who is not doing so well right now, maybe. Let's bring them here. See what happens as we offer the phrases of loving kindness to them. May you be safe. Be happy. Be healthy. Live with ease. And then all beings everywhere, all people, all creatures, all those in existence, near and far, known and unknown. May all beings be safe, be happy, be healthy, live with ease. And when you feel ready, you can open your eyes or lift your gaze. We'll end the meditation. Thank you, and may you be happy and healthy, and may you live with ease. And what a joy to have this time together. Really appreciate it. Well, thank you so much. Listen in each week for interviews, teachings, and guided meditations. You'll receive supportive tools for creating more meaningful work and mindfulness practices to develop yourself to influence your organization and to help change the world. Thank you for listening.